Amen. Grab your Bible, open it up to the book of Titus. Thank you, Andrew. Titus chapter 3 is where we'll be today. If you are um, sixth grade and down and you want to go to Kid City, now is the time. We have some fun programming back there for you. We're in a series called For the City. Paul writes a letter to Titus. Titus is pastoring on the island of Crete. And there's at least one or maybe multiple churches on the island of Crete. And there's some Christians there. And Paul is instructing Titus on how to get the church going there. The first week, uh, chapter 1, we read that Paul wanted Titus to install elders and to, to set in place uh, people who would help oversee the health livelihood, the prayer work of the church. And we did that a couple of weeks ago. We installed uh, three elders. Last week, we talked about good doctrine and how a great church must have good doctrine. And this week, we read in Titus chapter 3 this powerful passage, and I appreciate so much the way Andrew read it, because even as he was reading it, I was reminded that this passage of scripture can literally change our city. Here's the main idea of this morning. Your public life reveals what you believe about God. Uh, One of the places that I've enjoyed going over the years is to New York City. Raise your hand if you've ever been to New York City, Times Square. Many of you have. And one thing so fascinating about New York City, Times Square, is the people that you'll see. And uh, on one occasion, I went there and I saw this man who had painted himself in all gold. Raise your hand if you've ever seen something like this, somebody painting themselves. They're street performers. Well, uh, I can't just go and see him enjoy the street performance. In the way that I'm wired, I begin to labor in my thinking about, I wonder what this guy's life is really like. You know, I wonder what he looks like. Because on the outside, he's kind of glittery. And he's certainly a performer. People are putting dollars in a hat to uh, support his trade. But I wonder what it's like on the inside. Like, what is his everyday life? What's his, his public life that's different than his performance life really like? And as I was uh, reading the, the, um, the news recently, I read about a guy like this who uh, committed several crimes. And as the police... Um, began to chase him in his car as he's trying to get away, they thought it was so strange that there's a man painted in all gold in a getaway car. They caught him, and he was in all gold, and I wish I had the picture. I couldn't find it, but, uh, but he was, took his mugshot in all gold, and uh, there was like remnants of like these gold flakes everywhere. So on the outside, it looked pretty glittery, but what was really happening in his public life was he was committing crimes. There was some wickedness on the inside. What Paul is going to do here is he's going to say your outside matters. The way that you appear publicly matters for what God wants to do. And even if you have a little glitter on you and your life, and you can perform in different parts of your life, the whole of your life will reveal what's really in your heart. He gives seven things here in the very first part of chapter 3, and I just want to list these things in uh, verses 1 and 2. Seven things that he's telling Paul that Titus ought to remind the Christians at Crete about. 
Seven things. First of all, they're to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Did you know that in every generation, people, at least part of a group of people, have not liked the authority installed by God in governments? At, at, every, at every point in every generation. And, uh, and I think what Paul is telling Titus here is like, hey, uh, things may not be just the way that you want them to be, but you ought to obey the laws of the land. More could be said there, but let's move on. To be obedient. Certainly, as a follower of Christ, we would believe that God has commanded certain things and we ought to obey them. He, Paul tells Titus to tell them to be ready for every good work, which we'll talk more about later. We believe that our good works in the city are a public revelation of what we believe to be true about God. Oh, and here's where it begins to get difficult in his list. list. Speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle. To show perfect humility to all people. Now, these seven things which were irrelevant in this first century church have been relevant for every generation and are relevant to us today. And what Paul is wanting to tell Titus is that the way people see you act in public will say something to them about the God that you claim to serve. And Now, as I've mentioned, uh, the them in the passage is the Christians living on the island of Crete, and it seems as if these Christians were behaving in a way that did not reflect well on God. And, and I, I'm guessing that as Paul was reading this letter to the Christians on Crete, that the people heard this list of behaviors, like some of you have even. Uh, be submissive to religious authorities, okay. To be obedient, okay. To be ready for every good work, okay. To speak evil of no one, okay. To avoid quarreling, okay. 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 All right, that's simple enough. Without really taking to heart what he was saying and why he was saying it. You see, apparently in... The church on Crete, according to verses 9 and 10, the people were not behaving in these ways. In fact, they were spending their time on unprofitable and worthless things like foolish controversies, uh, genealogies, which is basically what the alignment of the stars mean, and taking sides in meaningless arguments. The Christians there were spending their time on things that did not really count for what God wanted to do in the city or on that island. And, and there, were, there were Christians or people who claimed to love God who were causing division. Their public life was, was ignored, and the, the importance of their public life was ignored. And so what they were doing is spending time arguing with other people in the church, arguing with other people in the city and for worthless reasons. And it was creating division. It was creating problems. And what Paul wanted to get through to them is that the way that you look in a city matters. It counts. God is doing something in the city for his own glory to rescue people from their sin and wickedness. And the way in which God chooses to work in a city is through people who choose to follow Christ. Now, in verses 3 through 7, this is how we do it here. I'm just taking you right through the passage. I believe that Paul knew that when these Christians heard the first few verses that they would hear it kind of like, okay, whatever. Kind of go about their lives, nothing changing. Because what he does in verses 3 through 7 is an awakening impulse through the Christians in Crete. Many of you, like me, enjoy 
um, medical dramas, and I'm sure you've seen on medical dramas, or maybe you've even seen in real life, someone whose heart has stopped, and what do they typically do to help someone whose heart has stopped? Get the defibrillator. Go ahead and say that word to your neighbor so you feel dumb like I just did. Defibrillator. They get the paddles. I think this is what Paul is doing. He's getting the paddles because he knows that these Christians are basically dead spiritually. They're not awake to the reality that God wants to use their public lives for his glory in a city. And so what Paul does in verses 3 through 7 is he gets the paddles, and he's about to put it on them. And I wonder if they even really cared. Let's look at verses 3 through 7. Verse 3, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hated one another. What Paul is doing here is he's going to try to compel them to consider their public lives by reminding them of the mercy of God in their lives through Christ. This is the great motivation. He's not going to try to shame them into to, to stopping their quarreling or their foolish arguing. He's not going to shame them into trying to obey. Instead, what he's going to do is he's going to go to the heart of the matter to try to awaken them and remind them how merciful God has been to them. But to understand the mercy of God, it's the big but in the Bible, we'll see here in verse uh, 4, we must understand how truly uh, wicked we are apart from God. Paul describes them in this way. They were foolish disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures that were dishonoring to God, passing their days, wasting their time in malice, bickering with other people and envy, looking at other people's belongings or the way of life and, and hating them for it. They were hated by others and hating one another. This is what it's like truly, an honest evaluation for all those that are apart from Christ. Now, it certainly plays out differently depending on how old you are when you get saved, but we can look at this when we consider a child. Children can be foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. I mean, not at a childlike level, passing their days in malice and envy, bickering with their friends. I mean, it's in their hearts Certainly as we get older, teenagers can be foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. And then you become a young adult, and you, it's a different form of the same thing if Christ is not ruling your life. You're foolish and disobedient, led astray. And then you get older, and what happens when you become older is you get a little better about filtering out things, and you can uh, more wisely uh, kind of put on a, a, a performance so that people think aren't, don't realize that these things are in your heart, but unless God rescues you from your sin, they're there, and they will come out over time. Now, this afternoon, when you're enjoying a meal with your family or you're talking to somebody, and they say to you, how was church? You, you can tell them, well, I was told how utterly wicked I am apart from Jesus Christ. 
may I say that? And I know that we live in a day where no one likes to be told what's wrong with them. I get that. But you won't appreciate the but in verse 4 unless you understand the reality of verse 3. We're so easily offended. We, 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 just for a second, though, I want you to consider what it was like for you before Christ, or maybe in what ways now, if you are not yet connected to Jesus Christ, that you're foolish and disobedient, led astray, enslaved to various passions and pleasures. Maybe you've gotten older and you've, you've learned to kind of filter it a little more, but there are moments where it squeezes itself out to reveal your heart being separated from God. I'm wicked apart from Christ. And I'm not trying to shame anybody or, or beat anybody up. I'm just trying to speak truth. One of my favorite depictions of this is in Oscar Wilde's novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray, written in the late 19th century. It's a story about a young, handsome man named Dorian Gray who decides to have his portrait painted. As he gazes at his finished portrait, he thinks... If only we could reverse our roles. If only my portrait would do all the aging while I remain youthful and unchanged forever. Well, he gets his wish. He remains a handsome young socialite while the portrait, hidden away in his attic, begins to age. But the portrait also begins to bear the consequences of what's really in his, is in his heart. What's really in his heart, although his exterior is handsome, quite put together, the portrait begins to reveal what's truly in Dorian's heart. For instance, Dorian makes a cruel comment, and the mouth of the portrait twists in a cruel grin. Dorian nurses um, hatred for a rival. And the eyes of the portrait narrow in rage. Eventually, Dorian murders a man, and the hands of the portrait drip blood. When Dorian finally recognizes that the terrible portrait represents his true inner self, he despises the painting so much that he slashes it with a knife. And later in the story, a servant finds that the portrait in the attic has vanished, and Dorian Gray lies dead on the floor with a knife through his heart. This is a parable of what Paul is saying. Apart from Christ, our hearts are wicked. It's in there. And over time, it will play itself out in our public lives. And we might even think we can hide it from others, but we cannot hide it from God. Verse 4. The turn in verse 4 is as if you were driving 200 miles in one direction and in an instant were turned to go the opposite direction. It's so abrupt and miraculous and catalytic. But, Paul says, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. I want you to know something about this passage in the original language. 
the way in which it's written in the Greek is that God is the actor and we are the recipient. God does the work that saves us. Verse 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Let me just say this. Good works apart from Christ are an attempt to earn salvation. And you, and you may be here and not a follower of Christ and you're a relatively good person and you would say, well, I'm not trying to earn salvation with God, but what you're trying to earn is a salvation in this life. You want to be saved from a boring life, a monotonous life, and, you know, an ordinary kind of life. Any kind of good works apart from Christ are an attempt to earn salvation, a, a salvation of being loved by a lot of people. But good works are for the Christian the person who recognizes that their sin separates them from God and that God has made a way to, for, their, for them to be saved is a response to salvation. Good works are, for the Christian, a response to salvation. Verse 5 again, then I'll go on. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. This is something that happens deep in you whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. God didn't just kind of do something through Christ. He poured out something on us through Christ. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the Bible. Verse 7, so that you, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the good news of the Bible. This is something we talk about every single week that though you were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, God made a way for you to experience new life. Now, I, my observation is that this is commonly misunderstood because sometimes people hear this and they think, yeah, there's some areas of my life that are kind of limping. I, I need God to, to clean up those areas. No! What Paul is saying is that you are dead. You're not just limping, you're dead. And God made a way for you to be raised from the dead spiritually and so you can experience the life that God has created you for. And God does this through the Holy Spirit who makes every part of salvation possible. And if you believe that you're limping and that God offers some kind of moral adjustments for you, and that's all you believe and are willing to give your life to, then you'll never really be willing to give every part of your private and public life to God. Some of you continue to struggle with things privately and maybe even publicly, and you wonder why. What I would ask you is, have you ever really given all of your life to God? Given your heart to God? Have you recognized that you are dead spiritually apart from Christ, but God made a way for you to be raised from the dead so that you can experience a God, the life that God has for you. Apart from Christ, you're outside the walls of the kingdom of God. But what God has done is sent Jesus, the king, to rescue you, to bring you inside the walls and to make you a prince or a princess. This is the gospel. Something supernatural that happens. No longer are you an enemy of God, but you're a friend of God. You become heir according to the hope of eternal life. Things change. You get a new identity. 
This is the good news. That's the big but of the Bible. And you, you might wonder, well, okay, if I'm so wicked, I know what happens in these conversations. Okay, if I'm so wicked, why in the world would God do this for me? Here's why. It is a display of his glory because he loves you. And if you believe, then you can give him your life today. You say, well, I have questions about the Bible. Well, certainly you do. We all do. But can you believe in your heart that your sin separates you from Almighty God and that there is a way for your sin to be forgiven through Jesus Christ who died on the cross for you, paying the penalty for your sin, so that someday you can stand before God, not as an enemy of God, but as a child of God, counted as righteous before God? That's the gospel. And the reason that Paul spends most of his time honing in on that is because he knows that for these Christians in Crete or for these people in Crete to actually be moved or compelled to to live public lives that honor God, that there's got to be a heart change. They can only manage their morality so often. They can only abstain from quarreling, from disobedience for so long. But for their trajectory of their lives to be honoring to God publicly, something must happen in their hearts. And it may sound as if my tone today is insisting. Well, I'm doing in my tone what I, Paul tells Titus to do to his people. Verse 8, the saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. And the result is so that those who have believed, those of you who do believe that apart from Christ you're wicked, in Christ you've been saved, you would be careful to devote yourself to good works. Your public life reveals what you believe about God. And the way that we live in the city matters. My experience in church life along the way has been we believe something to be true about God. Now let's hide until Jesus returns. But as I read the Bible, what God is doing, no, I care about all people. I care about the city and the people that I want to use to go into the city with the good news of the Bible are those who have already received it. We care about our public lives because we believe our public lives are a way for people to see who God is in our behavior and to hear who God is with our words. People who are committed to good works. Paul tells Titus, insist on these things so that people will be devoted to good works. And what I want to do as I begin to turn the corner to application, something that you can actually do tomorrow, is I want to give you three kind of signals of people who are devoted to good works. What is, what is it like to be a person who's devoted to good works? Well, the first thing that I want for you to see is that a person who is devoted to good works lives with their eyes wide open. Somebody write a song about that. I feel like that maybe it's already been written. Lives with her eyes wide open. Do you know what I mean there? Like you open your eyes and you look and for opportunities to do good works 
that would be a demonstration of your heartfelt belief that God has been merciful to you. And you can't do everything in the city. In this city, one thing about it, it's so large, there's so many needs. We might be tempted to run here, run there, run here, run there, and we just get spread out and frustrated and broke and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you can't do everything, but everybody can do something. God has something in this city that he wants done that he's going to use you to do. And it's not always big things. Oftentimes, it's very little things every single day. You just have to open your eyes. And you know what keeps our eyes from being open at times is our tendency to focus so much on ourselves. We're consumed with thinking about ourselves. And maybe not all of you. I know I'm tempted to do that at times. There's certainly nothing wrong with caring for yourself and caring about yourself, and that's very important, self-care. But if it's keeping you from noticing what's going on around you so that you can be open to the good works God would have for you, then that is a problem. Um, Interesting thing happened in social media a couple of weeks ago. Maybe you saw this picture. There's a desperate woman in Vancouver, Washington, who got a coffee at Dutch Brothers Coffee. She was in the drive-thru. Her 37-year-old husband had died the day before, and while getting coffee, she lost her composure. When the baristas, Pierce Dunn and Evan Freeman, figured out what was going on, they said, listen to this. There's nothing more we need to say. We got this. We're going to do what we do every time we get someone who's in pain or hurt. We're going to give you our love. And they offered their love by reaching out the window, taking her hand and praying for her. That's living with your eyes wide open. You say, is it important when I see a need around me that I feel like God's moving me to, to do something about? Is it important to do it? Absolutely it is. Live with your eyes wide open because your public life reveals what you believe is really true about God. What are opportunities right around you right now that you can demonstrate some good works? And remember, the good works aren't earning for you salvation. The good works are for you a response to your salvation. And so if good works aren't a big deal to you, then what is reality is that the gospel of Jesus Christ and the way it's impacted your life is not a big deal to you. The more we understand how wicked we were apart from Christ and what a radical thing it is that God rescued us through Christ, he mercied us, he saved us, the more we'll be mindful of what's going on around us and look for opportunities to demonstrate the love of God. Let me give you a phrase that you can use whenever you do a good work and somebody asks you, why are you doing it? You could just say to them very simply, I'm just showing you God's love in a practical way. People will be blown away by that. Second thing that a person does who's devoted to good works is they prioritize urgent needs. According to verse 14, Paul tells Titus to tell the Christians in Crete because there's needs everywhere. 
prioritize urgent needs. We've recognized as a church an urgent need in our city is in the area of human trafficking. Last week I mentioned to you that we're going to begin working with a group called the Freedom Church Alliance. And I asked you if you cared about the issue of human trafficking to write your name on the bottom of a comment card. And we would make sure you stay informed about how our church, not just me and Andrew, but how we as a church are going to be used by God to fight human trafficking in our city. And almost all of you put your name on the bottom of that card. We had a stack that thick. We prioritize this as an urgent need because it is an urgent need in our city. But as you look around you, you may see some other urgent needs. And by the way, if you want to be in the loop on what our church is doing in this issue of human trafficking, then you can take your comment card, write your name at the top, write just the words human trafficking at the bottom. If you don't care about human trafficking, then just write your name at the top and write I'm a loser at the bottom. We want to prioritize urgent needs. What are the urgent needs that you see around you? You can't meet them all. And so you might need somebody to help guide you if you find yourself like jumping at everything that moves. That is probably not wise. But what are the urgent needs around you? What are you going to do about it? Third thing that a person does who lives with, or who's devoted to good works is they expect nothing in return. Expect nothing in return. Why? Because you have received your reward in salvation. Three things. Lives with wise, eyes wide open, prioritizes urgent needs, expects nothing in return. Here's what I want you to do. I want for you to open your eyes to the opportunity for good works around you this week. I want for you to do it, and I want you, if you would feel comfortable doing so, take a picture of whatever you're doing, post it on your social media, and hashtag for the city. And if you go to that hashtag for the city, what you'll see is that there are churches all over the United States that are doing things in their communities on behalf of God for the city. So the hashtag is for the city. I would encourage you to do that. There are ways that you can get involved very practically. Uh, This school is a great opportunity for us to do good works. In fact, the first week of May, we've told them we would like to do something for the teachers in this school and the entire faculty. It's about 70 people. And so if you're interested in helping us just love on and care for the faculty of this school and just say, hey, great year, you made it, you're still alive, way to go. (laughs) If you've ever been a teacher, you know that that's saying something. If you want to be a part of that, just take your comment card and say, put your name and say, bless the teachers. I want, to, I want to be a part of that. We have another person in our church, Marco Martinez, who's a barber. And uh, he is going to start going down to under the bridge where a lot of the homeless people congregate. He's going to take his clippers and he's going to provide free haircuts. If you want to be a part of that, we have actually purchased him some, some clippers and some gear to make that a possibility. And so if you want to go with him down there and just care for some of these homeless people that don't have access to good haircuts like you and I do. Many of you and I do. Some of your hair is not so much. Um, But if you want to go with him down there and to care for the homeless people in this way, and you go expecting nothing in return. If you want to be a part of that, just take your comment card, put your name on the top, and put haircuts for the homeless at the bottom, and we will get you connected with Marco so you can do that. Good works. We are the kinds of people that believe because we've been saved by God is that our public life reveals what we believe about God. Let's pray about this and think about these things.
just in a moment of response, this is the time in our worship gathering where we invite you to respond in different ways. Just a moment, David's going to lead us in the taking of the Lord's Supper. And it's an opportunity for you to respond publicly confessing your faith in Christ. But before then, I want to ask you, for those of you who have never acknowledged before God that your sin separates you from him and you are wanting to receive forgiveness for your sins because of what God did through Christ on the cross, do it now. I invite you to respond. Right there where you are, just tell God, God, I know my sin stands before me in front of you. I pray that you would help, that you would forgive my sin. I receive forgiveness. I want to be saved. Just take a moment and consider that. And if you're already responded to the good news of the gospel at some point in your life. Maybe you have been convicted today about some area. What will you do with it? Don't, don't waste another day responding to the teaching of God's word with, oh, okay. May we all be the kind of people who understand that our public life reveals what we believe about God. And I pray that our public lives will be filled with good works.